verses 27 through 33. Mark chapter 11, again, is where we're going to be. If I put myself to sleep tonight, or today, this morning, um, Charlotte, uh, last night, she started not to feel good, and then um, she woke up in the night to go to the bathroom and was extremely hot, so Brianna took her temperature and it was 105, and so she took her um, to the emergency room, and it ended up coming down after a while. Um, uh, I said, I'll stay home and rest, Brianna, while you take her to the emergency room, um, but you know how that goes. I laid awake on the couch, um, but she's, she's doing better this morning. Still, this morning was 100 like 101.8, um, but if you could pray for her, uh, we would appreciate that, and then... Uh, so if I put myself to sleep, you know why. You don't have an excuse, but I have an excuse this morning. A question of authority, Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time in His Word this morning. God, we ask today that You would speak to our hearts through this passage. And as we look at another confrontation between the religious crowd and the perfect Son of God, we understand that they're their questioning of him, God, was not pure in intention. It was not with a desire to, to bow to him as Lord. God, it was really to get him to answer in a way that they could condemn him to death. And God, we're thankful that through the story of Christ in the Gospels, we have seen how your perfect plan is being worked every step of the way, that, that they did not lay hands on him, God, until you said it was time for hands to be laid on him. He did not get condemned to death until, by your sovereign decree and power, God, you allowed evil men to do evil things. I pray this morning that as we look to this passage and and we look at the authority of Christ, we would understand how beautiful of a thing this is. And as I said earlier, God, so, so many of us have been in situations where authority is labeled as evil. And certainly, we have probably been in positions where authority has been evil, where we have been abused or taken advantage of. And as we look to this passage today, God, I pray that we would be refreshed to see and understand the beauty of the authority of our Savior, that He doesn't misuse His authority, that He doesn't use it against us, God, that He doesn't use it to to destroy us, but God, He uses it to make us whole. I pray today, God, that we would bow under your authority. I pray today, God, that that in the areas of our lives where we are not submissive to you, that we would honestly understand how in reality we're hurting ourselves by not bowing to you. So help us this morning, God, to see what you would have us to see. Help us to understand what you would have us to understand. And may you use these things, God, for our good as you make us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We do pray again, if there's any here today who have never trusted Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. God, that you would work in their hearts to bring them to yourself so that they can understand the beauty of authority as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to say it with me. Exousia. Say it again, nice and loud. One more time. All right, that's, that's your lesson in Greek this morning. Um, this word, exousia, is the Greek word for authority, and this is the word um, that is in question today as we look at another episode of the religious elites versus Christ. 
Exousia means power or choice. It means liberty in doing as one pleases. It's translated in other places as right or liberty or jurisdiction or strength and power. And basically what's being asked here by the religious crowd is who gave you permission to do these things? Who gave you the jurisdiction or the power or the right or the liberty to do the things that you have been doing? We understand this sort of questioning, and likely we have all been asked or asked this question at one point in our lives or another. Whether it's when we were kids or when we're speaking to kids, we may phrase it a little differently and say this, what do you think you're doing? Who gave you the right? Who told you you could do that? We have been having a problem in our house recently, and it's a a problem with cookies. Um, Brianna will buy a pack of cookies, and it seems like those cookies are instantly gone. And my question to the kids is, who said you could eat all the cookies? I want the cookies, right? (laughs) But they've taken the liberty, they've taken the exousia, the the power, the jurisdiction to say, I'm going to eat these cookies. And it's not really a problem. It's probably to my benefit that they're eating them because their metabolism is so much faster than mine. But as we think about this passage with with Christ in the temple again, and as we think about the religious elites coming to him and questioning him in this area of authority, we must understand what is it that they're talking about. When they say, who gave you the authority to do these things? Who gave you the right to do these things? What things are they speaking of? Well, if we think back to last week, what did we find? Christ did. He came into the temple and he cleansed it. He tipped over the tables of the money changers. He tipped over the chairs of those who sold doves. He cast people out of the temple. And if you remember before that, he cursed the fig tree. And all of these things Christ was doing by his authority. And the religious crowd, the Sanhedrin, came to him and said, what do you think you're doing? Who gave you the right to do these things? But if we're honest, it wasn't just these things in the recent day that they were concerned over, but they were concerned over his whole ministry. They were ticked off. They were annoyed. They were frustrated. And in reality, they were fearful because Christ's display of authority was causing people to look at him and say, wow, there is something different about this man. There's something about this man that is worth following. There's something about this man that is not just human, but it's divine. It's supernatural. There's something greater than we've ever seen put on display in this man, and we want to follow him. And if you remember last week, the religious crowd saw what Christ did, and they began to be fearful. Why? Because people were following after Christ. They were clinging to him. They were in awe of who he was and what he was doing. And it all boils over today as they come to Christ and ask him this simple question, this question of authority. Who are you and why are you doing what you're doing? Authority is something we all struggle with. We can see it even at church. Now, as we spend time fellowshipping after the service, uh, I always chuckle a little bit and it's only because I've been there, but you see the, the younger kids, not, not my kids, the younger kids, they're running around after church and their parents are like, what? You got to stop. You got to stop. And, and the kids, what do they do most times? Remember, I was there. I still am there most times. They keep running. And it's funny, right? We laugh it off. We, we make jokes about it. But what is that in reality? 
It's rebellion against authority. It's God-given authority in a parental figure who's telling a child to do something, and the child doesn't do it, and that's an issue. And I'm not picking on our church. I love the kids running around. I'll help you stop your kids if you want them to stop, but it really doesn't bother me. But it's a simple illustration of an issue with authority. And we can pick on kids, but who else struggles with authority? We do. As we think about the God-given authority that has been placed in our lives, how many of us fight against it? As we think about the, the people in authority that God has placed over us, how many times are they a topic of our conversation and not in a good way? We discuss them over dinner, more like we're having them for dinner as we discuss them. But, but regardless, we have an issue with authority. And from the youngest to the oldest, every issue with authority is in reality what? A hard issue. Every time that we rebel against God-given authority, it's a hard issue. Every time that we reject God-given authority, it's a hard issue. Now, are there people that abuse authority? Certainly there are. Probably all of us have been in those places. Probably all of us have been in situations where authority was taken advantage of to manipulate and control and to, to gain something for themselves rather than benefiting the whole community or the whole group of people. And so we're not saying that even in evil authority, we need to just stay silent. But when authority just rubs us the wrong way, maybe we need to question if it's a problem with our heart or a problem with the authority that is in place. And so as we look to this passage today, we're not talking about simply parental authority, although that's something I think we as Christians should talk about. We're not talking about political authority or, or ruling authority in a church setting or a synagogue as, uh, or the temple as was taking place here. But in reality, the authority that we're discussing this morning is the greatest of all authorities. It's the authority of Christ. It's the, the reality that Christ reigns as Lord and Savior, that he is the one who is in control. He is the one who gets to call the shots. And as the religious crowd looked at Christ, they said time and time again, who are you and what are you doing? If you remember back earlier in the Gospels when they saw Christ's display of authority, what did they say? You're doing what you're doing by the power of devils. And they were excusing themselves away from coming under his authority as they questioned the authority that he had. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the authority of Christ. And we're going to see two things, and I'll give them to you now, though we won't get there in, in, for a little while. The first one is simply this. Christ has authority. Whether you recognize it or not, church, Christ has authority. Whether you submit to it or not, Christ has authority. Our submission to the authority of God does not make God's authority greater. And we need to understand that. It just makes his authority a reality in our lives. And so Christ has authority. The second thing we're going to see, and you can ponder these as we talk through this passage, is simply this. Does Christ have authority? Christ has authority, and we're going to make that case very plainly and very clearly. But the question then that we're left with to ponder and consider and to think over for our own lives is simply this. Does Christ have authority? And this is what the religious crowd was struggling with. 
They understood that Christ was doing great things. They understood that Christ was able to heal the sick and raise the dead and give sight to the blind and heal those whose limbs had withered. Uh, We understand and they understood that Christ could feed thousands of people from just a little bit of food. They understood that Christ had authority. But where they had an issue was in this, and that was in coming under his authority. And saying that while we understand you have authority, Christ, they were saying this, we're not going to place ourselves under it. So my prayer today, as we look through this passage, is that we would have a right view of the authority of Christ in our lives. The big idea is simply this, the question at hand is concerning the authority of Christ. While we probably don't readily recognize it, we all likely struggle with submitting to his authority in various areas of our own lives. I want you to be honest with me all the time, but especially right now. Who here would say that you understand there's an area in your life that you struggle with God's authority? Raise your hand. Look around the room. Keep your hands up. Look around the room. Friends, that's... that's pretty much everybody here. And while misery loves company, it's not a place we should determine to stay. While we recognize our shortcoming, while we recognize the areas where we struggle, the recognition in reality should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to this place where we're submitting fully to Him. And I think that's what Christ is getting at as He goes through this passage, as He goes through this time with the religious crowd on this day the day after he had cleansed the temple. In verse 27, the Bible says they came to Jerusalem again. It was the next day. And I'm sure there was a lot of side conversations as people saw Jesus coming into town one more time. There were those, remember, who were in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. There were were those in Jerusalem who didn't normally live there, and they witnessed either through their own eyes seeing what Christ did, or they witnessed through the words of other people that there was this man who came into the temple and he completely destroyed what was going on there. And so as Christ walks into town again, what do you think the reaction of the people is? Oh, what's he going to do today? What's going to happen this time? What's he going to do when he comes into the temple on this occasion? As Christ was at the temple, as he came to Jerusalem one more time, the Bible tells us that he was walking in the temple. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that he wasn't just walking, but he was teaching. And so yesterday, Christ came in and cleansed the temple. And today, being as bold as he was, as God in the flesh, he walks back into the temple, and the temple complex as a whole was about 36 acres. So it was a big setting And the Bible says that Christ was walking and he was teaching. Now, if he was teaching, what does that mean? There was likely people who were following him around, listening to his teaching. This was a common way for rabbis to teach in that day, especially in open-air settings like in the courts of the temple. They would walk around and the people would follow them. They were disciples. They were followers. And the teacher, the rabbi, would use the things around him to illustrate the things that he was trying to teach. Now, how often do we see Christ do that? All the time. He's using what's in front of him to relay valuable messages to those who were following him. And as Christ was there teaching in the temple, as he's walking from place to place in the temple 
complex, most likely in the court of the Gentiles again, the Bible says that the religious crowd, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who made up the Sanhedrin, they came to him. Now, on the day before, when these religious men saw what Christ did, do you think they slept well that night? I bet they were pretty ticked off. Probably in their minds or verbally saying, the next time I see him, I'm going to fill in the blank. The next time I see him, I'm going to confront him about what he did to our temple, how he's robbing us of our authority, how he's robbing us of a following of people that we have amassed to ourselves. And so the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of, of men, they saw Jesus in the temple and they came to him on that day. And when they come, in verse 28, they simply ask him a question. They say unto him, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? As I said earlier, they had already made up in their minds that the authority or the power that Christ had was not from God, but that it in fact was from devils. But they knew they couldn't overly express that or else what? They were going to have a riot on their hands. And it wouldn't have been Jesus who was crucified, but it would have been them. The people wouldn't have stood for it. And so instead of accusing him with, with sacrilegious words, they came to Christ at this moment and they just simply question him. How do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Who told you you could do the things that you're doing? You see, they wanted to know who. But it wasn't so they could submit to him. It was so that they could use his words against him. Because if Christ said, I do these things by the power of God, what would they have cried? Blasphemy! In fact, 150 years after this took place, in the Jewish law, it was recorded that if you declared to do power or, or miracles by the power of God, then you would be condemned to death. And where did they write this law from? Their experience with the perfect Son of God, whom they condemned to death. So they come to him and they ask him a question. By whose, by whose authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right to do these things. The Bible says in verse 29 that Jesus answered and said unto them. I'm sure as they heard him begin to speak, they were ready to pounce. They were like Satan, whom Peter describes as a roaring lion seeking whom they would devour. And yet Christ, as being God, answers them in a way that only Christ could. And when they're questioning his authority, he again proves his own authority. As they're coming to him and saying, hey, we want answers of you, he overrides their questioning and says, no, I'll only answer you if you first answer me. He says, I will ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. This was not Christ manipulating them. This was simply Christ proving that he held all power, that he held all all authority. And so in verse 30, he asks them the question. He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? And then I love how verse 30 ends. Answer me. The baptism of John, 
Sanhedrin? Was it from heaven? Was it from God? Was it divine? Or was it just strictly a political move that, that I had conjured up to make myself look good as John pointed to me? Tell me, where did the baptism of John come from? Answer me. And you notice they don't say, well, if you answer our question, then we'll answer your question. Because even though they didn't recognize it, what were they playing into? The authority of Christ. That they felt the burden on themselves as Christ asked a question to answer him or to at least find a way to get out of the questioning so that they could go on with their day. The Bible says in verse 31, they reasoned with themselves. They, they took a moment to huddle off to the side. And I can picture these men, who knows how many there were, huddled in a group saying, guys, what are we going to do? He's asked us a question that in reality we can't answer. If we say the baptism of John is from heaven, then he's going to look at us and say, well, why didn't you believe it? Why, why did you ridicule and persecute and destroy John? Why did you let him be beheaded by Herod, this man that you're in cohorts with? Why, why did you not believe the words that John said that he was in reality pointing to me? They understood that they were caught. And so, of course, they can't say that John's baptism was from heaven, for that would prove in reality that they were working the works of Satan and not doing the works of God. But then their reasoning continues. We can't say it's from heaven, because they'll ask us if we, why, why we didn't believe. But we can't say it's for men, because all these people are going to stone us. Like, if we say it's from God, we lose. If we say it's from men, the people will have their way with us. And, and not only will we lose our position, we'll lose our lives. And so these men, when they came to Christ, hoping to catch him off guard, hoping to catch him in a place where they would cause him to slip up, found themselves in an impossible situation. And so they answer... But their answer is not really an answer. In verse 33, the Bible says, They answered and said unto him, We cannot tell. And their answer was a total cop-out. Because deep in their hearts, they knew. Deep in their hearts, they understood that John's baptism was something more significant than they had ever seen in their lifetime. As they saw John the Baptist come on the scene and begin to baptize for repentance, to prepare people to receive a Savior. Remember, these were the religious elites of the day. They were the religious leaders. And so what did they, they know the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to? A time when a Messiah would come. But they didn't want the Messiah. Why? Because they enjoyed their own authority. They didn't want one to come who would rule and reign. They didn't want one to come who would tell them how to live justly before a holy God. They didn't want one to come who would show them the true path of life. Why? Because they had taken that upon themselves as their own job. They enjoyed controlling other people's lives. They didn't want to be controlled. They enjoyed telling other people what to do. They didn't want to be told what to do. And so while their question had to do with the authority of Christ, when Christ asked the question about the baptism of John, truthfully, the answer was there, 
for their question. Because the baptism of John was from who? It was from God the Father in heaven. And where did Jesus get his power? From God the Father in heaven. Jesus says in the end of the gospel, all power has been given unto me. Well, who did he receive that power from? Well, we understand that eternally the power was his. But as he came to earth, what did he do? He stripped himself of his divine rights and became a man. And yet he still, at the end of his life, before he ascended back to the Father, said that, that I have power, I have authority, I have exousia. And who did he give that power to? To us. And what was the power for? To do the will of the Father. And so their answer was in reality found in, in the question of Christ. Though they didn't want to admit it, though they didn't want to play into his line of reasoning or give in to the things that he was saying, they walked away defeated on that day, probably saying to themselves, how are we ever going to get rid of this man? And the truth is, they would one day get rid of this man, but not by their power and authority. They would get rid of this man by God's sovereign decree by God's display of power and authority. Who was it that delivered Christ up? Well, from a human perspective, we would say that these evil men did. But in reality, who was it that delivered Christ up? It was none other than the Father, as he sent his Son to be a sacrifice for sins. And so, friend, who has authority? God does. God does. And as Christ was on this earth, he was the express image or the very form of God walking amongst men. And we will see today again that Christ has authority. But the question I would ask us that I really hope that we'll take with us as we leave this place is simply this. Does Christ have authority? Does he have authority in my life and the things that I say and the way that I live? Does he have authority in the way that I handle myself in situations that are uncomfortable? Does Christ have authority in the way that I steward my life, using the resources that he has given to do his work? But first off this morning, I want to paint a picture again that Christ has authority. As fast-paced as the gospel of Mark has been, and as much as we have seen Christ do in the gospels, one thing is clear, Christ has had authority. Christ is not out there pounding the pavement saying, hey, listen to me, but his authority is seen in that people were listening to him. If you remember early on, was Christ saying, hey, bring the crowds to me? No, the crowds were just simply coming insomuch that when he went to bed at night, there was a crowd at his doorstep, and when he woke up the next day, guess what was waiting for him? A crowd of people to see Christ do the miraculous, to see Christ do the unfathomable, to see Christ do the things that they had never seen done before. And so his authority, though it is seen in his words, his authority is best seen in that people were following him without him begging them to follow. Friends, if you have to remind people that you have authority, then what have you lost? You've lost authority. If in our households we have to say, I'm the mom or I'm the dad and you'll do what I say over and over and over and over and over again, and we've all been there, then for some reason, for some season, we've lost control. But understand this, Christ never lost control. He always had authority, and he always will have authority. 
He never assembled a crowd. The crowd always seemed to assemble to where he was. He never sent people ahead of him to find the sick and prepare these people or convince people to fall into his plan. But the sick somehow always found him. As the religious crowd saw this early on, they were quick to associate his works with the works of Satan. But we understand that the works Christ did, he was able to do because he was God in the flesh. And this should amaze us as we think about the incarnation of Christ, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Something that he didn't have to do, but something he chose to do because he understood that his display of power in life and in death and in life again would be the only thing that would save humanity from their sins. So through the gospel of Mark, as fast-paced as it was, there have been numerous times where we have seen the authority of Christ put on display. We mentioned this when we began the book, and I'm sure everyone remembers that. But there are 18 specific miracles in the gospel of Mark. And truthfully, we've made it to the end of the miracles. We're in the last week of Christ's life. Some say this is, this is the Wednesday of the final week of his life. We don't know the exact day, but we do know that it's the last week. We know that Christ's life was coming to an end, and we have several chapters to go. And so from here on out, including this one, there are five confrontations that Christ faces with the religious people, most of them taking place in the temple. And so his, his ministry has kind of moved from, from doing the miraculous to now proving that he is very God of very God through the words that he speaks and through the interactions that he has. But I want us to remember the things that we've seen so far. In Mark chapter 1, we see the man with the unclean spirit was healed. He was filled with demons, and Christ says, get out of him, and they came out. In Mark chapter 1 again, we see that Peter's mother-in-law was healed. She was sick with a fever, and we think fevers are no big deal, and today they're not, but then they were. And Christ came in, and he said, be healed, and she was healed. We think of Christ healing the leper in Mark chapter 1. And it wasn't that Jesus just came near to him. It wasn't just that Jesus spoke to him or looked upon him, but Jesus touched him. And through his touch, we see the divine power of the Father flow through him and heal this man who was separated from his family, living in a community of leprous people. We see Jesus heal the man who was sick with a palsy as his friends lowered him down through the roof and the religious crowd went crazy over this. We see that Jesus healed the man with a withered hand in the temple. And as he stuck forth his withered hand, all of a sudden that hand became whole again. From there we see Christ calm the storm with the disciples in great fear as they rebuked Jesus for sleeping. And Jesus said, why are you fearful? You have the Son of God who has all authority in himself with you in this moment. From there, we saw the maniac of Gadara who had been chained and abandoned, a man who was cutting himself and a danger to himself, but also to those around him, who then in the next scene is clothed and in his right mind, begging to go with Jesus on the journey, a display of power. We saw the daughter of Jairus who was dead and raised to life again. We saw the woman with the issue of blood who had dealt with this thing for 12 years when she touched the hem of his garment. She was made whole from that point forward and her faith 
was, was visible as she crawled on her hands and knees to where Jesus was. We saw the feeding of the 5,000 as Jesus took a little boy's lunch and, and multiplied it to feed the multitudes of people. We saw Jesus walking on the water and Peter sinking as he had a lack of faith in that moment, but Christ still rescued him. We saw the Syrophoenician woman's daughter with an unclean spirit healed as she came to Christ and said, yes, but even the dogs, even the dogs receive the crumbs that fall to the floor. Christ healed her. We see the feeding of the 4,000 as Christ again did a miraculous thing as he fed the multitudes of people through just a few pieces of food. We saw the deaf and dumb man healed as Christ spit on his hands and and, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, as he stuck his hand, fingers in the ears of this man and his hearing came back. We saw the blind man who was healed as Christ spit on his eyes. We saw a demon-possessed boy who was healed that was once casting himself in the fire, but now was upright and walking and acting like a normal human being. Just recently, we saw blind Bar- Bartimaeus cry out to Jesus, the son of David, for him to have mercy on him, and Christ had mercy. And then the last miracle that Mark records is the cursing of the fig tree. And in all of these things, what is Christ saying? What is he showing? What is he revealing to all those who are walking with him? And what is he revealing to us, church? That he has authority. That he is greater than any man who had ever lived. That he's not just a prophet of, of men, but he is God in the flesh. And as Christ, as, as I said, comes to the end of his time on this earth, he reveals that this authority was given to him by the Father. And that he then passed this authority on to us to do the work that God has called us to do. And so this truth of the authority of Christ should bring great comfort to our hearts. For in his actions, we see that he does not misuse his authority or leverage it against us, but he uses it to prove that he alone is the Savior and he used his authority to make this a reality. And doesn't that overflood your heart with joy that you think this Savior who has all authority has used it to make himself known to you and I? A people who were sinners, a people who by all rights should be separated from him, a people that should have no hope that Christ used his authority to make it known that he was God. We see in the Gospels, as the life of Christ comes to an end, as the religious crowd finally gets their way and they condemn him to death. And in that moment, they thought they had won. But friends, they were in for a rude awakening because Christ does not lose. He's never lost a battle and he will never lose a battle. And the reality that he died was not because of their power, but as I said, it was, a, it was because of God's power. And the fact that he rose again was because of his power as well. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58. He says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And he goes on to say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And what is Paul drawing our attention to in this moment as he's writing to this church at Corinth who is struggling with sin, who is struggling with authority? He says, hey guys, the battle has been won. The battle was won by Christ. And so it's not any longer about what you can do. It's about what's been done for you. That death has been swallowed up. And he's calling them. Just as Christ is calling us in this passage. To understand that he is a savior with all authority. Do you know why we don't fear through this life, friend? Because our Savior has all authority. Do you know why we can sing the songs like, He will hold me fast? Because He actually will hold you to the end. And though your life is hard, and though you face things that you don't understand, rest in this truth that everything that's going on in your life right now is under the sovereign control of a good God who loves you. He has authority. And just in, as we've seen in any of these miracles, at any time he could say to that thing that's plaguing you, stop, and what would it do? It would stop. But sometimes under his authority, he has determined to allow the trial to continue. Why? not because he's not powerful, but it's because in his authority, he also has wisdom. And though we don't understand the fullness of the trial or the reason for the trial, our Savior with authority does. You see, authority without wisdom is a dangerous thing, right? Authority without wisdom is where we get dictatorships in in countries where one person says, I'm going to be in charge, and the rest of the people, at the beginning at least, say, okay, or they try to fight back, but they're not powerful enough to fight back. And so this one person, who usually lacks wisdom, finds themselves in authority, and what do they do? They do whatever they want. But as we said a moment ago, as we understand the authority of Christ, he doesn't simply use his power for his benefit. What does he use it for? For our benefit. He uses his power to reveal to us that he is indeed the Son of God. And so rest in this truth, friend. Christ has authority. And the thing that you're going through, rest in this truth that Christ has authority. Rest in this reality that you're not alone, that you are seen, that your situation is understood, and that according to Romans 8, 28, he is working all things for our good even if it doesn't feel good right now. 
but rest in this truth that Christ has authority. And this is something that the religious crowd understood, but they didn't want to admit it. And even though they wouldn't admit it, we must understand that it didn't change the reality that Christ has authority. I could go out tomorrow and commit some heinous crime and not try to flee from the scene, but just try to stay there. And as the police come onto the scene, they say, you're under arrest. And I say, no, I'm not. I have authority. How foolish would that be, friend? And as I resisted and tried to fight back, it probably would not end well for me. Why? Because I don't have authority. And yet so often in our lives as we we understand the calling of God in our lives. We at times go out and act any way that we want. And though we may never speak the words, they are the words that are expressed from our heart that say, I have authority. And all the while, God is saying, no, you don't. The Bible says that when we rise up in pride against God, that He resists the proud. But what does He do to the humble? He gives grace. And so the first thing, as we've seen, is Christ has authority. And the second thing is just a continuation of this point, spinning it in a different light. And it's simply this question, friend, does Christ have authority? He does, but does he? He does, meaning he can do anything he wants at any time. But have we relinquished that authority to Him in our lives. There's an interesting tension in the Word of God between the sovereign decree of God and the will of men. And we believe that mankind has a will that often tries to push against the reality of who God is. Now, I, I say this all the time, and I'll say it to my grave, that God's plan will always be accomplished. We just have to ask ourselves the question, Do we want to be involved in it? It will always come to pass. Everything that God has decreed will come to be. The question is, do we want to be involved in it? And so we understand, as we've seen, that in a general sense, Christ has exousia. He has jurisdiction. He has power. He has control. He has authority. He has rights. He has liberty. He has ability to act and do what he's going to do. And we should be excited that he uses it in, 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 in a sense for our good and his glory. But the second question that I think we struggle with at times is, does Christ have authority in my life? It's a similar situation with kids. My kids would always say, I think, Unless, oh, I have been on a kick of trying to embarrass Noah when I drop him off for school. Um, so he might not always admit this, but they would never deny that I'm their dad, right? <laughs> Best case scenario, they would never deny that I'm their dad. I don't think there's anybody here who would deny that God is God. Not in our words, but where in our lives are we denying that God is God? So in a general sense, we understand that Christ has authority. But in a personal and intimate sense, 
do we submit to that authority? So we saw back in the end of, or in, in chapter 10, I guess it was, where, no, it was the end of chapter 10, um, where Christ was making his way to Jerusalem, and, and there Bartimaeus was. Why did he cry, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me? Because he understood that Christ had what? Authority. And by his cry, what was he saying? I want to come under your authority. You have authority. I want to place myself under your authority, meaning that I want you to do what only you can do. I want you to work in my life as only you can. And so Bartimaeus understood the general sense of the authority of Christ, but then he submitted himself to the specific or individual sense of the authority of Christ. And there's two main areas where this takes place. First and foremost, Christ has authority as Savior. He is the only one who ever could and ever will save mankind from their sins. And so I would ask you this morning, friend, have you placed yourself under the authority of Christ in a saving sense, recognizing that He alone can save? You see, church, if if we grow children who simply know how to follow religious rules, but they never come under the lordship of Christ and salvation, then what have we raised? We've raised moral kids who know how to say and do the right things, but they have no relationship with the Son of God. There's a big difference, huge difference, a difference that determines where you will spend your eternity. And so you may be here today saying, I know how to act like Christ. I know how to talk about Christ. But I would ask you, do you know Christ? Have you come under his authority to say, I need you as my Savior? Last Sunday morning at the end of the service, a lady came with questions about salvation. And at the end of our conversation, basically what she said is, I need Christ as my Savior. Wednesday night, a little girl came and said, hey, I have questions. As we talked through the gospel, she bowed her head. And what did she say? I need Christ as my Savior. You see, Christ is the Savior. But the question is, is He your Savior? Have you bowed to Him and said, Christ, though though I'm a sinner and I recognize you are perfect and holy and just, I recognize now that I need you not just to to be added to my life, but I need you to give me life because I'm dead and I'm blind and I can't live for you in my own power and my own strength. Christ, I need you. That's what coming under the authority of Christ looks like. And guess what, church? Everybody will do this. Paul says in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the question is, will you do it before it's too late? You see, because some will bow in this life and find salvation. Some will bow in the next life and it will be to condemnation. So is Christ your Lord? Is Christ your Savior, not just a Savior that we talk about at church, not just a good guy who did good things, but is He your Savior? Are you resting in Him alone for your salvation? That's the first way that we 
can understand His authority in our lives. Secondly, if He does have authority as your Savior, then I would ask you, does He have authority as your Lord? As I mentioned earlier, there's an interesting tension as we think about the authority of Christ and our choice to submit. And truthfully, our choice to submit, to submit points back to the reality that He is our Savior. We like to paint this picture or understanding that, yeah, you can just trust Christ and then go off and live any way that you want to live. But friend, that is nowhere in the Bible. Never. Never once does Christ say, come unto me and then go do what you want. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, the enemy, he's the one trying to get you to think that through him is life, but really through him is death. But I'm the one who has come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. And that life as we understand it is not just eternal, but life in Christ is abundant. As we think about authority in our world, it's again often looked at as a negative, that somebody has their thumb on you, keeping you under their control so they can get what they want in the end. But the authority of Christ is so vastly different. Certainly, he says, come unto me. And certainly, he says, I want you to walk under my authority. But why does he do it? Because it's for our good. He's not a savior who's manipulating us to get what he wants. He's a savior who gives us an opportunity to understand the fullness of life. And the world is saying, oh, we have what will make you happy. We have what will make you complete. We have what will make you joy. But they're lying for only Christ can give us those things. And so I would ask us this morning, have we bowed to Christ as Lord? As we think to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus walked by the sea and walked by the tax collector booth, he simply said, follow me. And what did those men do? In boldness and, and not full understanding, they said, we're going to follow you. Did they understand everything from that point on? No, they missed a lot. But 11 of those 12 men, died for this person that said, follow me. Eleven of those twelve men said, I'm going to give it all. Why? Because the authorities of this world are corrupt. And the authority in my own heart is corrupt. But the authority of Christ is pure and good and righteous. And it leads to life. And so where in our lives are we not submitting to the authority of Christ? Where in our lives are we not following His words that we see in the Gospels? Where, where in our lives are we not following what the Bible has to say in the epistles through the writings of Paul? Where in our lives have we said, God, I know this is what you say, but this is what I'm going to do. Anytime we say that, we're setting ourselves up for failure. And so in areas of, of love, do we love God first and love others as ourselves? In areas of service, are we serving only those whom we enjoy being around while neglecting people who are more difficult? In areas of judging, are we making ourselves judge, jury, and executioner? Or are we gracefully approaching situations that we do not understand to help a brother or a sister in their time of need? 
in areas of relationship? Are, are we forgiving? Are we kind? In areas of stewardship, are we obedient? In the area of how we use our words, are we slanderous or liars? Or maybe that sin that we often overlook, are we a gossip? You see, Christ doesn't just desire authority in some areas. He deserves and demands authority in all areas. He doesn't say, follow me where it's convenient or where it's easy or where you understand. He says, follow me in all things and at all times. And I am not standing here as a man who has it all together, for I readily and probably too often admit my failures to you. But as we said earlier, when we recognize those failures, do we laugh them off and write them off? Or do they lead us to repentance? So as we understand this confrontation between Christ and the Sanhedrin, as Christ came on the day before and cleansed the temple, proving again His authority, and as He was then in the temple walking about, teaching those who had determined to follow Him, the Sanhedrin come and say, where do you get your authority? And by Christ's own statement, He admits to them, though they didn't want to hear it, I am the authority. My authority is not man-made. It's not on loan to me by a deity, for I am divine. We understand that Christ has authority. But the question we have to ask is, does Christ have authority? Paul understood this tension in his own life. Romans 7, he goes on to talk about the battle within. The things I know I should do are the things I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do. Those are the very things I find myself doing. As he goes into Romans 8, you know what he says though? Praise God that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, because so often in our failings, we become condemning. And so often in the failures of others, we become condemning. But if we're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And if we're in Christ, the recognition of our shortcomings should only lead us to repentance. And so for the believers in the room this morning, where in our lives do we need to repent? of taking what's not ours to take. Where in our lives have we said, God, I know, but this is what I'm going to do. May we fall in our faith, not because we fear condemnation, but because we understand we've taken something that's not ours to take. Would you examine your heart? brothers and sisters? Would you look deep in the places that maybe you don't even like to look? Would you think over the things that maybe you have just written off as being a part of your personality? We all have those things. 
we turn from those things and turn to Christ so that we can find true life. For those here today who have never trusted Christ, I simply ask you this. Will you bow to his authority? You say, oh, I'm just going to try a little harder and, you know, I've been coming to church and it's making me feel better. Friend, salvation is not about feelings. For if it were, we would all be lost. Salvation is about facts that we have placed ourselves under the authority of Christ by the invitation of Christ and He has given to us life eternal and reconciliation and redemption and hope. And I would ask you today, do you have those things? Because if you're looking for them in yourself, you will never find them. But Christ says, come unto me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I wonder today, will you find the rest that Christ is offering? Will you understand in reality that in Him is the only place to find that rest? Will you turn from your sin and turn to the only one who can question of authority. Christ has authority. The question we're left to wrestle with is, does Christ have authority? And I wish we could say that after one sermon, we'll never struggle with this again. But friend, it's the struggle that we'll face every day for the rest of our lives. We may gain victory in one area, But you know what happens when you submit more and more to the authority of Christ? You recognize more and more the areas that are not submitted to Him. So may we give Him the authority He deserves. May we give Him the authority He demands. God, we ask this morning that You would do what I cannot do. That You would take Your Word through Your Spirit and that you would penetrate the deepest parts of our hearts. God, we we need you. We cannot become righteous through our own efforts and through our own strength. We need you. God, we can reform some of our bad habits for a short period of time, but we need you to change us. God, I pray that we would look to you to be that authority that we need to guide us into life abundant. God, I believe many in the room are resting in the reality that Christ is their Savior and that eternal life is waiting for them on the other side. But may we also live an abundance of life as we're on this earth. And God, that's only possible as we submit to your authority. And for those who don't know Christ as Savior, God, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. That by faith they would turn away from themselves and their religious deeds. That they would turn away from their fears. That they would turn away from the unknowns, God, that plague their mind. And they would just simply bow at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. 
God, we ask you to do what you can do, what only you can do. We promise to give you the praise and glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have questions about Christ, friend, I would love to talk to you as we sing this last song. And if you are a believer today, I would ask that as we sing this last song that we simply examine our hearts to see where we have taken authority that is not ours to take and that we would once again submit to Him for He alone deserves it. Dave, would you come and lead us in a song?